Hey, it's all relative listener. I know. It's Jeffrey McDonald again. This is the end, I swear. Also, this is a true crime podcast, not the cozy mystery corner. Listener discretion is seriously advised. And now to get you in the proper state of mind for the final episode in the series, here's Queen. I want to break free. Jeffrey McDonald is taken to prison immediately following the conviction and placed in solitary confinement. The next morning, he writes a letter to Joe McGinnis. In fact, he writes at least one a day for the six days he's in solitary. He has a long list of complaints. Bernie Siegel immediately tries to get bail pending the results of an appeal. This seems like an obvious no, doesn't it? Judge Dupree concurred. Siegel, of course, took that appeal up the chain. The higher court also said, fuck no. And yes, that is a paraphrase. Siegel was able to get McDonald transferred to Terminal Island, a minimum security prison in California. Although the move was a benefit to Jeff, the travel itinerary was not. Slow prison bus across the country. Team Jeff McDonald is not daunted. They try the right to a speedy trial claim again. Quote from Fatal Vision. On July 29, 1980, by a two-to-one decision, The Fourth Circuit panel found that McDonald's Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial had indeed been infringed upon, and to such an extent that the jury's verdict should be set aside. The sentence of three consecutive life terms in prison should be vacated and the original indictment dismissed. 3,000 miles away, Freddie Kassab termed the decision a travesty and said, I'll stand by what I said five years ago. If the courts of this country won't administer justice, I will. Hold on, Freddie. We're not through. McDonald returns to California, but is not satisfied to be out on bail. He wants to be vindicated. He hired a former FBI agent, Ted Gunderson, to track down Helena Stokely and essentially badger her until she confessed. Quote, Ted Gunderson released a copy of Stokely's confession to a Fayetteville, North Carolina newspaper and told Los Angeles reporters that she gave names of everybody involved and gave details of the crime. It was a sex, drug, satanic cult and a Manson-type murder. Gunderson added that Stokely's group had called itself the Black Cult and, still active, had committed at least 13 murders altogether. End quote. I used LSD a lot. At the time, acid was the name for LSD. I chanted, acid is groovy, kill the pigs, hit him again, or something like that. Do you remember doing that? I remember chanting it, but I did not write it on the headboard. Someone else wrote it down there. What was written on the headboard? Did you see this? When I went in, I saw something similar to what I had said. When he was on the couch the second time, when he was being beaten again, I said, acid is groovy, kill the pigs, hit him again. Can you remember anything in the house itself that could prove that you were there? beyond any doubt at all, the placement of furniture, the location of, say, the jewelry box? 
I know where the jewelry box located because I went in there several days before, approximately three weeks before. Um, Why were you in there three weeks before? For the purpose of larceny to obtain money for drugs. No one was home? Uh, not at that time, no. So you went to the jewelry box at that time? Yes, sir. And then the night of the murders when I went in, as far as objects in the room at that time, when I went in, there was a flower pot there, which was knocked over. The television set was on, but off the air. Uh, there were reading glasses there. There were Valentine cards. Um, there was a book turned over as if he was reading it before we went in, Dr. McDonald. And that clip is a part of that interview with Gunderson and Beasley. First, does no one remember that the poor woman has been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia? And second, this is the height of the satanic panic. Of course she's going to blame it on the Satanists. Can we believe her? Even without the mental disorder, she has changed her story so many times. How can you trust anything she says? Take her interview with Beasley and Gunderson. The something written on the headboard was the word pig. Nothing to do with acid or LSD or even kill. She went in three weeks prior to steal to feed her habit. Why didn't she take anything out of the jewelry box then? Why didn't she take anything from the cupboard full of drugs? The book was turned over as if somebody had been reading, but McDonald said he finished the book. It should have been closed and lying on the end table. Everything else was information she could have gotten from the trial, the media, gossip, she swears she didn't read the newspaper, but there were so many other ways she could have heard that information. In this interview, she also says, at the trial, she tried to give names of people involved in the murders and that her testimony was stricken from the record and the jurors told to disregard her testimony. This last part is patently untrue because several of McDonald's future appeals used her testimony as a critical reason for the appeal. I know that the working knowledge of the time, and actually to an extent still today, is that people don't confess to things they didn't do. But I have to wonder if the defense team, plus Beasley, consciously knew they were manipulating her to lie. I mean, there's conscious, and then there's conscience. Helena has some consciousness at having been used, because she writes to Gunderson on July 30th, 1981, quote, It is my opinion that in the preceding months, I have been used as a pawn for your convenience and suitability. I also feel I was coerced into signing a so-called confession, and that I was exploited by means of false hopes and empty promises. Never have I seen a bigger mockery made of justice, or of such a shambles made of investigation. When I finally agreed to cooperate with you, I gave you as conclusive a review of the events of the night in question as I could. You, in turn, misconstrued and distorted all statements made to you to be used against me at your convenience." End quote. And no one on the prosecution side ever goes after Helena for these crimes. On December 8, 1981, the decision by the North Carolina court to vacate the charges and release Jeffrey McDonald due to the lack of a speedy trial went before the U.S. Supreme Court. The decision wasn't reached until March 31, 1982. In a 6-3 decision, the Supreme Court ruled that McDonald needed to get his ass back to prison. He had had a fair and speedy trial. And oh my god, I love this quote from Joe McGinnis's Fatal Vision. During his first week back in prison, McDonald wrote me to say that he'd read in the Los Angeles Times 
that Robert Redford was looking for new material and he suggested Redford be approached about the possibility of playing the role of MacDonald in a movie version of the story, end quote. <sighs> Give me a minute to compose myself. Take a deep breath. Okay, continuing. This is from MacDonald's girlfriend. No, not the same one he had when his secretary made dinner reservations for them while waiting for the jury deliberation. This is another, newer girlfriend sending information to Joe McGinnis. Among the seemingly more pertinent to the case documents is a contract she and MacDonald have drawn up and signed. Quote, the contract was dated April 12, 1982, which meant that it had been composed less than two weeks after MacDonald's return to prison. We, the undersigned, are deeply in love and have agreed to become man and wife forever. We both fully intend for this complete union to occur as soon as it is possible to do so. We both fully intend to have two children within our first several years together in order that our children can enjoy our intense love and benefit therefrom as much as possible. In addition to the above, the undersigned had fully discussed and mutually agree upon another series of binding promises to each other. These promises are part of, but not the total sum of, our complete love for each other. These promises were made on or about our fabulous weekend in Palm Springs, during which Jeffrey Robert MacDonald proposed to and was accepted by Randy D., the date of which began on Saturday, March 20th, in the year of our Lord, 1982. The engagement followed as soon as was humanly possible, namely on March 24th, 1982, in a ceremony and gathering of mutual friends that by general consensus was a party of all-time grace, elegance, and beauty. The series of binding promises to each other made on that fabulous weekend leading to the engagement party consist of 1. Neither party, namely JRM or RDM, will ever go to bed and sleep angry at the partner. Each partner promises to clear the problem prior to sleep, even to the extent of awakening the other partner and talking through the night to accomplish the goal of renewing the full feelings of love and respect. <sighs> 2. Each partner will always make every effort to be home every night with his, her, loved partner, friend, lover, spouse. In the unfortunate event that either partner cannot be home, every effort will be made to call the other partner and say, I love you. 3. Each partner agrees that the love shared is so great and so intense that it can overcome any problems that may arise by a full and truthful answer. Number 4. Each partner in this lifelong contract of love and fidelity agrees that the single most important thing and person in the world is their respective partner. 5. Furthermore, each loving partner agrees that our children are part of our love and will share in our love and happiness and growth, and that our loved children are a major part of our universe and will assume a position of importance in our family superseded only by our incredible love for each other, a love so great that it is awesome to both of us and observers. The children, they had decided, were both going to be boys. End quote. Shortly after this pack was made known, said girlfriend tells McDonald it's over. McDonald had had Bernie Siegel as his attorney for 12 years. He'd even expressed his love for the man in a letter to McGinnis. At this point, just after he returns to prison, McDonald fires both Bernie Siegel, saying Siegel is an asshole, and Ted Gunderson and hires a new attorney. Quote from Fatal Vision. On Monday, January 10th, 1983, the Supreme Court, without comment, denied McDonald's request that it review the Fourth Circuit's rejection of McDonald's claim that he had not received a fair trial. This brought to an end, after 12 years, 10 months, and 24 days, the legal phase of the Jeffrey McDonald case. End quote. Except it doesn't. The motions can to be filed. Appeals worked on. He files a lawsuit against Joe McGinnis, which we talked about a couple episodes ago. 
forensic science moves on, and McDonald gains a new supporter, Errol Morris, the filmmaker. Morris had been working as a private investigator when he became interested in a case in which a convicted cop claimed to be innocent. Through his investigation and the resulting film, The Thin Blue Line, Randall Adams was freed from prison. The case of Jeffrey McDonald caught Morris's interest in the 1990s, and Morris thought he might be able to do for McDonald what he had done for Adams. Morris's book, A Wilderness of Error, was published just in advance of Jeffrey McDonald's appeal in September of 2012. Morris's premise was that McDonald was most likely innocent, and it was the bungled investigation that eliminated evidence of any other perpetrators and left only McDonald as the possible suspect. For someone with a reputation as Morris, I was very disappointed in his book. He made assertions, many of them completely true, but did not give references and especially did not critically examine or defend those assertions. It was disappointingly thin. So much so, I was loath to watch the documentary of the same name that is available on Amazon and Hulu. Needed to be as informed as possible, I steeled myself and sat down to watch the doc. At first, I was confused because it seemed to be more pro-Jeff as killer than I really expected. Then I realized that it wasn't actually Morris's doc, or at least not his, solely his. He's more of an interviewee rather than an interviewer. And he actually redeemed himself at the end when this happened. So either she's got her story wrong or Jeffrey's got his story wrong. What do you think? I think that Jeffrey's account is suspect. And it really seems internally inconsistent and not entirely believable. Do I believe that means that it, there were no intruders in the house? Uh, maybe. Maybe it could be an elaborate attempt to cover up his own participation in the crime. But I don't know. Do you think from that story there that she was in the house? I don't know. Does that tell me that she wasn't there? Eh, not really. One thing that we know about human beings, they have an almost infinite capacity to believe anything. And people are endlessly suggestible. But it goes both ways, of course. If we don't like a story, and I'm not any different from anyone else in this regard, we can say it's confabulation, it's confused, it's unreliable, and if we do like it, we can say, oh, it is reliable, it isn't confabulation. We can depend on it. People take sides. People respond to one narrative versus another. We are compelled by narratives, much more by narratives than by evidence. Evidence invariably takes second fiddle to narrative. Do you think you're still a reliable narrator in this story? He never was a reliable narrator. I'm not immune. I'm as fucked up as the next guy. Take my word for it. 
I do have two pet peeves about this documentary. The first is that those boots they have the woman in the white hat wearing are not go-go boots. Surely in a documentary of this quality, you could afford to get actual go-go boots. And my second pet peeve is that they have a woman as a talking head whose only credentials are true crime fan. Yes, that's it. Her lower third is true crime fan. What the fuck is that? But I digress. Otherwise, Mark Smerling et al. have made, if not a bit over-dramatized, a very good documentary. I recommend watching it. If you do, you may notice a few details I left out of my coverage of the case. Peeps, this is episode 7. You really want me to make more out of this case? McDonald's 2012 appeal was based on DNA analyses of evidence from the crime scene. This was obviously not available at the time of the original trial, in 1979, and Team McDonald was using this as new evidence proving his innocence, or at least suggesting other actors were involved. They also have an affidavit of a former U.S. Marshal, Jimmy Britt, who claimed he had been the one to transport Helena Stokely from South Carolina to the North Carolina court to testify at the trial in 1979. Britt had walked into Wade Smith's office in 2005. Remember, Smith had been Siegel's co-counsel in the McDonald's 1979 trial. Britt said that during the drive, Stokely had confessed to him all the sordid details of her involvement in the murders. Stokely could not counter this testimony because, quoting from Fatal Vision, on the afternoon of Thursday, January 13, 1983, the body of Helena Stokely was found on a couch in an apartment she had been renting in Seneca, South Carolina. The body, found by a maintenance man who had come to the apartment to install weather stripping, was in a state of decomposition which indicated she had been dead several days. Her seven-month-old son, the product of her marriage to Ernie Davis, or the guy who tried to drown her in the pool, who was serving a 15-year jail sentence for first-degree sexual assault at the time of her death, was found barely dehydrated but alive beneath a crib not far from the couch. From his Bastrop prison cell, McDonald said he found the death highly suspicious, but autopsy disclosed that Stokely had died of natural causes, pneumonia, brought on by cirrhosis of the liver, which for years had been diseased with hepatitis, end quote. And this quote is going to be from Final Vision, which is McGinnis's follow-up book to Fatal Vision. Quote, Britt went further. He said that the next day he'd been present when Jim Blackburn, the lead prosecutor, had reviewed Stokely. After she repeated to Blackburn the same thing she told Britt on a ride from Charleston, Blackburn threatened to indict her on murder charges. As a result of Blackburn's intimidation, Britt said, Stokely agreed to lie on the witness stand by claiming she had nothing to do with the murders. End quote. Now, Britt died in 2008, so it was his wife who testified at the 2012 hearing, as well as Wade Smith himself. Smith's testimony ended up being the more important of the two. Smith became a key witness against Britt when he testified to what had actually occurred once Jimmy Britt walked to his office. Firstly, Smith had a conflict in that he was a longtime colleague and friend of Jim Blackburn, and he was, or had been, Jeffrey McDonald's attorney. To assuage this concern, he called another attorney to come take on the affidavit. Firstly, Britt kept changing the location where he picked up Helena. Secondly, he insisted that Judge Dupree was given a birthday cake by the jurors, and seeing the judge eat a piece in his chambers, and two law clerks were also present. However, there was no birthday cake, and those particular clerks had yet to become Judge Dupree's clerks. 
The affidavit was redrafted and re-signed with the location of the pickup finalized and mentioned the cake removed. It was the second version which McDonald's defense filed with the court. In addition, the marshal who had actually transported Helena Stokely to the trial testified, along with the other marshals who testified to Britt's lack of work ethic and egotism. Britt's testimony was disregarded. McGinnis was called to testify. His account of the case in Fatal Vision had become a point of interest in the McDonald case. You see, because McGinnis had all the same access as McDonald's legal team, he was privy to conversations that everyone else was not. And because he published that information, on the OK of McDonald, I might add, it could now be entered into the public record and into the court documents. Of particular note to the appeal is the private questioning Bernie Siegel gave to Hannah Stokely prior to her testimony. Quote again from Final Vision. There were a few surprises at the hearing, but Bruce had one for me. As I'd worked on Fatal Vision, I had available for reference a copy of the transcript of the 1979 trial. Bernie Siegel had sent it to me. The most interesting volume was the one that contained the bench conferences. Those murmured exchanges at the front of the room that neither jurors nor spectators are able to hear. I'd never noticed that several pages were missing. Siegel died last year, so I can't ask him, but it seems apparent that Siegel removed pages that reported what he told Dupree about the Stockley interview. Bruce handed me those pages and had me read them aloud from the stand. I was astonished. At a bench conference that took place with Stockley already on the stand on Friday, August 17, 1979, Siegel told Dupree, During the interviews with me and with other persons present, Stokely stated that when she looked at the photograph from the crime scene, she had a recollection of standing over a body, holding a candle, seeing a man's body on the floor. She also stated yesterday she remembered standing at the end of the sofa, holding a candle. She also said when she saw the body of Kristen McDonald, the one when she was clothed with the baby bottle, that the picture looked familiar to her. She also said when she was shown the photograph of Colette McDonald, that the face in that picture looked familiar, except that the chin was broken and it made it a little hard. She also stated that she was standing on the corner of Honeycutt, across from Maloney Village. She has a recollection of standing there during the early morning hours of February 17, 1970. She further stated yesterday, and I intend to ask her now, that she has a recollection of standing outside the house, looking at her hands and saying, My God, the blood! Oh my God, the blood! She said that took place February 17, 1970. There are witnesses to each of these things. I must say, Your Honor, there were persons present the entire time this interview took place. When I finished reading this, Bruce asked me if anything Siegel had said about the interview was true. I said no. Bruce asked me again if I'd been present for the Stockley interview. Absolutely, I said. Bernie wanted me to see him in all his glory. He thought this would be his big moment and he didn't want me to miss it. Bruce asked me my view of what Siegel had told Dupree. I don't like to speak ill of the dead, but he's standing in front of a federal judge just making stuff up, end quote. And we've covered this on a previous episode of this podcast. Helena continually denied being a part of the murders and said she didn't remember most of that night. McGinnis was also there to testify to the escatrol usage. Because no harmful drugs were detected in McDonald that night, and particularly because the Army had never tested for amphetamines, Escatrol use had been omitted from the trial. 
and even though they had enough to convict McDonald, motive had always been a shaky part of the conviction. Why did he do it? Again, because the understanding of amphetamines had changed in 30 years, and especially because Joe McGinnis had put his research and McDonald's journal in public circulation, they were able to enter it into evidence at the appeal. Escatrol had become illegal to sell in the U.S. in 1981, reportedly because its manufacturer had failed to show that the drug fulfilled the weight loss claims. In 1969-70, which is when McDonald was in the weight loss trial, it was obviously legal and still professing its validity in aiding in weight loss. Though it does seem weird that they would use Green Berets as subjects for weight loss. I mean, Green Berets don't exactly have a reputation as being overweight. I'll let you ponder over what really might have been going on there. It's not like, in 1970, there wasn't a general understanding that amphetamines can cause some serious side effects. Jeff McDonald even rags on his brother Jay for his use-slash-abuse of them, and he denies using Escatrol much at all, and certainly not on that night. Why deny it if it doesn't matter? He had lost quite a bit of weight, even for a fit man to begin with. He was in a drug trial, and in order for that trial to work, he had to take the drugs. He wasn't sleeping much, and that's common with amphetamine use. And amphetamines can result in psychosis and rage. None of this is to say that it was the Escatrol that made him kill his family. We don't know, and we can't. Unless Jeff McDonald suddenly decides to say, yes, I was on Escatrol. This can only be speculation. But at least in this appeal hearing, the possibility of a motivation has been entered into the record for future courts. And lastly, remember that DNA? First, the DNA results were available in 2006, although it took nine years to get it. With how much Jeff McDonald has been eagle-eyed focusing on anything that could help his cause, why did it take them six more years to bring up this evidence? Granted, it may have taken a bit to be in front of a judge with this, so maybe it took him four years? It's still a long time. Regardless, the DNA showed that three hairs were not associated with any of the McDonald's nor with Helena Stokely. Unfortunately, these hairs have no context other than associated with the crime scene. They could come from anywhere and from anyone and help the case in no wit. Yes, they could come from one or all of the three mysterious male attackers. Or they could come from anyone who had visited the McDonald home or passive transfer for any of the McDonald's leaving and then bringing home a piece of wherever they went. Low card. That's a thing. Look it up. McDonald's team brought Helena's brother Eugene to Dan to testify. Eugene said that on her deathbed, his mother had told a tale in which her daughter Helena had confessed to being at the McDonald murders. He had taken this info to Jeffrey McDonald's wife. You heard me. Her name is Catherine. They married in 2002. And Catherine went to the, the bedside of Mrs. Stokely, took down the statement, and had her sign it. This document was supplied to the court. An additional affidavit was presented to the court in which Bernie Siegel's assistant during the 1979 trial recalled Helena saying that she couldn't confess because the prosecutor, meaning Blackburn, would fry her. Why she didn't bring this up at trial is anyone's guess, that is, if it's true. And the final witness for the defense was a woman with whom Stokely had lived before her death. The woman said that Helena had called herself a wizard and said she had been with the group who had killed the McDonald's. That was Jeffrey McDonald's case for appeal. But come on now, you know this man isn't going to just let it go. His most recent appeal was for compassionate release, which he filed in 2020, heard and denied in 2021. Of course he appealed that denial. He was denied. Both Fred and Mildred Kassab died within months of each other in 1994. 
Bernie Siegel died in 2011. Jill McGinnis died in 2014. And let's not forget that Colette, who was almost five months pregnant, Kristen and Kimberly all died in February of 1970. I want to make it known that there are people who think Jeffrey McDonald is innocent. Errol Morris held that belief for years. After the documentary, he now admits he has doubts but still leans on the side of innocence. Is it possible that a group of youths entered the McDonald home and attacked everyone? Yes. Is it possible that Jeffrey McDonald is an asshole, stuck in the cluster B zone, and be innocent of the charges? Yes. However, even with the bungled CID investigation, everything points to McDonald's guilt, and I, for one, am losing no sleep in the knowledge that he will spend the remainder of his life in prison. If you like what you hear in this podcast, give us a follow, tell your friends, and or rate the pod. Constructive comments are always welcome. No trolls allowed. Find me at Despecta or a variation on most of the things. And here's the clash to send you on your way. I'll see you next time on It's All Relative. 